Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. So many Californians have been really upset about the ongoing events in Israel and Gaza. The issue is so polarizing that it's driving a wedge between longtime friends. It's creating rifts between spouses, tension at holiday gatherings. There's so much loss and despair, so much pain and rage. I'm listening to a lot of people, a lot of people in the Jewish community where families are riven with conflict. And I've heard several cases in which parents and adult children are not speaking to one another. I'm Sasha Coca, and it's the California Report magazine. Today on our show, we're going to hear from Californians trying to do a really hard thing, trying to talk across what can feel like a huge divide. A human life is, is one of the most valuable things in this universe. And whether it be an Israeli or a Palestinian life, we can build allyship even around the loss of life. Like a lot of people, journalist Asal Asanapur has been in a state of despair. The magnitude of pain on both sides of the conflict has been almost too much for her to bear. One of the only times she's found comfort recently was at this panel at the San Francisco Jewish Community Center. It featured Israeli and Palestinian speakers who had lost a loved one to the ongoing conflict. One of the speakers was a man who'd moved from Gaza and now lives in the Bay Area. Coming to California opened up his thinking about embracing our shared humanity, even during times of war. Asal brings us his story. I meet Ahmed Fuad Al-Khatib at his friend's house on a quiet, dead-end street in the foggy beach town of Pacifica. It's hard to miss. So they have the Free Palestine poster, a peace sign on the door, a peace sign in the window, a sign that says peace also in the window, and then there are people. Most of Ahmed's family is in Gaza. He moved there from Saudi Arabia when he was 10, just three months before the Second Intifada. It was a particularly violent time between Israel and the Palestinian territories. But Ahmed says there were still pockets of serenity under occupation going to the beach and flying our kites. Living in a four-story building with his huge extended family. Wedding receptions that flow through the night and into the morning. So there was beauty in the midst of misery. There was happiness in the midst of violence and war. But he couldn't get used to the hum of war tanks and the hassle of checkpoints. Even though he was supposed to act like the occupation didn't bother him, he couldn't. There was this unspoken social pressure to suppress any um, 
sense of fear and, and overreaction to the violence and to tough it out and to move forward. Ahmed remembers his uncle Riyadh sharing stories about working in South Israel back in the 90s. It was a different time back then, Ahmed says, when it was somewhat normal to work with Israelis side by side. They formed these super tight bonds with Israeli communities. Those stories of how close and trusting Palestinians and Israelis could be, they lingered in his mind. Even as a kid, he hated the Israeli occupation, but he thought it was wrong to resist using suicide bombers. He said that this was an unpopular opinion. And I remember distinctly how, as I was pushing hard against any targeting of civilians, several students began speaking up and saying, actually, he's right. I think it's wrong. And our religion, our culture, our morality should prevent us from targeting anyone who's not carrying a weapon. And it was then that I realized the power of persuasion and how people want to say what they believe, but they're timid. It was a life lesson that stuck with him. Then, one day, Ahmed says, he was walking home from the seventh grade when an Israeli airstrike landed nearby. His friends had been right behind him. And upon coming close to look for them and see where they were, a second airstrike took place. Um, and that's when I discovered my um, dead friends. He knew he needed to get out of Gaza. I, I, I knew that I had no future in Gaza and that I wanted something different. So when he was 15, Ahmed joined the Youth Exchange and Study Program. The U.S. Department of State started it after 9-11 to repair relationships with majority Muslim countries. High schoolers would come study in the U.S. for a year. Ahmed came to the Bay Area and stayed with a host mom, Delia McGrath. She would take me to school. She would make me breakfast. She helped me get on my feet. I, I call her my U.S. mom. Delia practices Buddhism, and during that year, she taught Ahmed about meditation. To me, as a child coming from a war zone like Gaza, it was a very unusual concept. This idea that somehow you're just going to be angry and you're going to express it, but you're going to work methodically through a set of approaches and beliefs to turn that anger around and to work through it. Together, they began attending a Jewish-Palestinian dialogue group. It was very much so a novel idea for me to sit with American Jews and Israelis in the same room and exchange stories and exchange experiences. Before this moment, he'd never interacted with an Israeli or a Jew. Ahmed said it was socially criminalized back in Gaza. And I quickly realized that Israelis, in a different way, can also experience pain, suffering, hardships, the impact of, of horror and, and, and terrorism and violence. That intuition he'd had back in Gaza really crystallized. It turned out Palestinians and Israelis had more in common than he thought. And that maybe we can build this mutual empathy for our people's struggle. I mean, the, the whole idea of this group wasn't that we sing Kumbaya together and we all believe the same thing. It didn't erase their lived experiences. It didn't erase their beliefs. People were allowed to disagree. But if we could, at minimum, respect each other's humanity, we can still disagree politically while being friends. Ahmed was going through a metamorphosis. And meanwhile, 
Life in Gaza was shifting, too. Israeli troops have started their withdrawal from Gaza after Israel and Hamas militants declared an end to their three-week conflict. However, the In 2005, Israel removed all its troops and settlers from Gaza. As Hamas rose in power, its leaders intensified calls for armed resistance and rejected a two-state solution. That didn't sit right with Ahmed. He was scared from afar of what it meant for Gaza. It was a period of increased radicalization in the Gaza Strip. Hamas won Gaza's first legislative election in 2006. And I knew that it would be a disaster for our people, and certainly for Gaza, and that it sealed my fate in terms of never being able to go back. Ahmed says that's because Hamas hated the cultural exchange program he participated in, the one the U.S. State Department created. They thought that, you know, we were being trained as spies and we were being trained as, you know, being brainwashed. So with Delia's help, Ahmed applied for political asylum. He was naturalized as a U.S. citizen when he was 24. He had a diverse friend group and continued to deepen his relationships with Jews and Israelis. But he often found himself out of step with people he thought he'd have most in common with. I I had a hard time being around other Arab-American and Palestinian-American and Muslim-American communities and and individuals for a variety of reasons, like people wanting to out-Palestinian me. Many of these folks had never lived in Gaza, lived their whole lives in the diaspora, looking from the outside into the conflict. And here was Ahmed, an insider with lived experience. And he felt like they didn't care what he had to say. Or they felt that I went too far in promoting peace and coexistence at the expense of describing what was really happening on the ground and that I was merely being tokenized and letting people take advantage of me. And maybe some of those criticisms were accurate, but at the end of the day, I never wanted my actions to be guided by others' projections onto me. Over the years, he's forged his own type of advocacy, publishing think pieces in Jewish and Israeli publications and trying to establish a humanitarian airport in the Gaza Strip. But Ahmed says that being in the middle, this no-man's land bursting in shades of gray, can be a lonely place, especially now, since October 7th when the Israel-Hamas war broke out. Entrenched narratives, violence, incitement, hate, rinse and repeat. Ahmed is just so tired of it. You know, pro-Israel or anti-Palestinian, anti-Israel and pro-Palestinian. Like, I'm not pro this and I'm not anti that. Ahmed doesn't think that picking a side is helpful right now. He condemns hardliners on the Israeli right and wants a future for Gaza without Hamas. He's calling for a ceasefire and demanding that all the Israeli hostages be released. Ahmed says the Palestinian and Jewish pain don't have to be in competition. A human life is one of the most valuable things in this universe. And whether it be an Israeli or a Palestinian life, we can build allyship even around the loss of life. Loss of life is something he's familiar with right now. The four-story building he grew up in was bombed. His whole family was inside when the rocket hit their house. His cousin's 13-year-old daughter was killed, and his uncle Riyadh, who'd been the day laborer in South Israel, died a few days later. I mean, it's been incredibly horrendous on so many levels. Every day is exponentially worse. Ahmed's brother and his family evacuated to southern Gaza. Even if they survive, they have nowhere to go. They're homeless. But despite it all, Ahmed's commitment to peace is unwavering. I don't think it's helpful to further inflame tensions because I need to keep 
nurturing this side of me that is compassionate. I mean, and, and this commitment to love and to not hate. And at the same time, I understand why people are upset. I really do. I mean, and if somebody's going to be upset, it is me. I am frustrated. I am angry. I am worried. I'm anxious, but I'm not hateful. And he renews that promise to himself every day. That was Asala Sanapur reporting from Pacifica. A version of her story about Ahmed Fuad Al-Khatib also aired on KALW. This story represents just one part of our coverage of the latest Israel-Hamas conflict on NPR and member stations here in California. You can find more perspectives at kqed.org. One place Californians are having those tough interfaith conversations is in groups like the Jewish Muslim organization, the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom. It tries to build relationships between Muslim and Jewish women of all ages. And the Palo Alto chapter is where Dr. Lema Ramawi found community. When I first joined, I was given a list of the covenants of the group. And one of them was to not talk about uh, Israel or Palestine. And I remember laughing and saying, well, that's very difficult to do because I'm Palestinian. She stuck with the group and she eventually shared her story. That moved a fellow member, Rabbi Amy Eilberg. And I got to learn more from her story and I got to watch the Jewish women who had not had that kind of practice before have some of their early experiences listening to something that was challenging because we'd been taught that that set of views was threatening to us. Rabbi Eilberg and Dr. Ramawi went on to become good friends, the kind of friends who can work through disagreements. KQED's Brian Watt spoke with both of them recently about how they've stayed friends in light of the ongoing conflict. I want to start by saying I love Amy. I think that she's an incredible person, and I've learned so much from her. We don't always agree, and we definitely have had, as Amy calls them, intensive debates about a lot of things. I do remember feeling that in the early years. I remember feeling that I wasn't sure how much you were able to take in of a narrative that was completely different from your own. That was very threatening. But then early on, you know, I came to see what an incredible person you are and came to love you. I mean, once we started really loving each other, then it, you know, it got easier. I remember the very first time we met, we had a session reviewing or talking about our personal stories. And some of my Jewish sisters talked about their parents or grandparents that were Holocaust survivors. And I had an opportunity to talk about my grandfather who survived the Nakba in 1948. It really was so important to see that other people had experienced not the same thing, but what we experienced was very similar. And I think it really helped have compassion for each other and kind of see beyond the differences to the similarities. People hearing this might be thinking, how have you stayed friends in light of the Israel-Hamas war now and the humanitarian crisis unfolding in Gaza. The vast majority of the world doesn't want innocent children to die, and it doesn't matter where they come from or what religion they are. And so I always hang on to that 
no matter who I'm speaking with or who I'm thinking about. There was no question. Yes, there was a horrific attack. I mean, unbelievably um, brutal and unspeakably horrible attack committed by Hamas against Israel on October 7th. But then as things have developed, as Israel felt that it needed to defend itself in, in Gaza, shortly after October 7th, I think it was maybe a couple of days after October 7th, she invited us all to come to her house and to just talk and be together. And I wasn't surprised that Lema reached out in that way, but I was so moved. It was just so beautiful. I mean, this is what peace looks like. And it was really wonderful because my sisters that came, whether they were Jewish or Muslim, just shared um, the intense pain that they were feeling and how their families were being affected. And if you're able to see that, then maybe we can work together to end the suffering for both our peoples. When I want to talk about this conflict, I have a genuine fear of oversimplifying a situation that is very complicated. But when I hear you to talk, I feel like the people can see peace. I've always believed that. I know from the Israeli side that the level of trauma and horror and pain and fear is so enormously great that for now, and I hope to God that it's temporary, a lot of Israeli Jews must be feeling, you know, I used to think that peace was possible, but now I feel really shaken. Do you think that the majority of people just want to feel safe and be able to give their kid a glass of water when they ask for it and feed them and tuck them into their beds every night and know that the next day they're not going to be killed? And I think that that is what we see happening when people um, all over this country are coming together to stand up for the innocent. And so that's why I see that there is a path towards peace. People are getting together. Sometimes current events come up. How are your own families talking about this? I have family in the West Bank who are basically hiding in their apartment because they're afraid that they're going to be attacked. I certainly have family in other places like Jordan also who can't see peace right now. There are generational differences. Our adult children are in a somewhat different place than we are. And I'm listening to a lot of people, a lot of people in the Jewish community where families are riven with conflict. And I've heard several cases in which parents and adult children are not speaking to one another. I mean, it's almost impossible to be at our best and our kindness under those circumstances. But, you know, I think that I I still believe that it is humanity that's going to win, and it's humanity that's won every single time in the end, even if the path is long and even if it's difficult. That was KQED's Brian Watt speaking with friends Rabbi Amy Eilberg and Dr. Lema Romawi. They met through the Palo Alto chapter of the Jewish Muslim organization, the Sisterhood of Salam Shalom. And now we're going to zoom out away from the conflict, away from the Middle East, 
even away from California. I mean, zoom way out. People of Earth, attention. This is a voice speaking to you from thousands of miles beyond your planet. The idea of extraterrestrial life. It's something that's been in the movies for decades. There was E.T. E.T. Phone home. And the Klingons from Star Trek. And of course, the men in black. Our mission is to monitor extraterrestrial activity on Earth. But none of it's real, right? For our Hidden gem series, KQED's Catherine Monahan headed out to the Hat Creek Radio Observatory, about an hour and a half east of Reading, to find out. The observatory is a little hard to find. There's goats. There's goats. I think I'm going the wrong way. It's out on the edge of town, past the cow pastures, in an old lava bed. Surrounding mountains help block interference from human sources, which there aren't many of out here. So it's a great place to listen for transmissions from space. We are constantly searching the skies in order to find evidence of other life in the universe. Dr. Vishal Gajur is waiting when I arrive. He's a staff astronomer with the SETI Institute, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So this is actually the only site in the world which is dedicated 24-7 to do this research. He leads me up to a giant white radio telescope that looks more like a giant satellite dish. We can see the scale of it. It's quite huge. How tall is it? Oh, looks like it's 30 feet, isn't it? There are 42 of these telescopes scattered across a field, and each one is the size of a three-story building. They're moving. They are moving, yes, correct. So we are observing right now, and we actually routinely change sources. They look almost like meerkats, those little animals that all swivel their heads at the same time. Vishal says he can show me one of the antennas hidden inside the telescopes, where it's undergoing maintenance in a lab. We can actually go inside that building. Let's do it. Now, here is where it really starts to look like science fiction. Strips of heavy plastic hang from the ceiling. Behind them, the air is suctioned out to create a clean room. The one that looks like a a warhead is actually a feed. Um, So let me go inside and open it up. Okay, I should stay outside? Yeah. Okay. You're you're lifting the warhead off. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Underneath is a log periodic antenna. It's what converts the radio waves into electrical signals. Looks like a Christmas tree, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say like an Aztec temple or something. But yeah, it looks like a tall gold Christmas tree, you're right. Right, it is actually gold-plated. The lower end is actually corresponding to the lowest end of the frequency. And the high end, as you go to high-end frequency, the wavelength becomes smaller and smaller. So are you saying that each branch of the Christmas tree is the length of the wavelength that it is designed to receive? Absolutely correct. Because radio waves have longer wavelengths than visible light, they don't get absorbed as easily and can travel much farther through space. Also, they're observable both day and night. So if you want to communicate across large interstellar distances, radio waves are best possible ways to do that. And when you say communicate, are you also broadcasting? We are not broadcasting. This is actually just a passive receiving. I don't think so that as a civilization that we are yet ready to just start transmitting because we are yet sort of very young 
species in the universe and a scale of thing like universe is a 14 and a half billion years old and our technology is only like a hundred year old so we are a very new kid in this big jungle so we shouldn't start shouting we should first <laughs> listen to what's out there Vishal takes me back through the telescopes toward the main lab where that listening takes place on the way we pass a big white building with rounded corners People are always wondering that uh, what's inside that, and we just joke around that day we are hiding UFOs. <laughs> oh yeah, that's where you keep the aliens. <laughs> that's where we keep the aliens. That's correct. <laughs> uh, but it's just a shed to keep our uh, heavy equipment, heavy machineries inside, keep out of the snow. Sure. <laughs> We're walking over optical cables that run underground, carrying the input from the telescopes over to the main lab, where it is processed and displayed on screens. Grace Brown, an associate researcher here, helps interpret it. Is there something that you're looking for that you're like, that is what it's going to look like when we find the alien (laughs) fingerprint? Yeah, we make what's called a waterfall plot, which is uh, just frequency versus time, and it kind of looks like a streak going through it. That streak would indicate an intense signal. All objects in the universe, if they have a temperature, emit radio waves at some level. Stars emit them. So do you. So does your cat. But they're usually pretty weak. A strong signal might come from a technological source, indicating a life form that's intelligent enough to build machines. If we can detect it, we assume it would be an intentional communication. Um, With us? Yeah, probably. It is a strange feeling to be talking with highly trained academics about alien contact. SETI to me is such kind of a unusual convergence of the tinfoil hat with the PhD. Not, like, no disrespect. <laughs> no, I no, totally no, no. think, like, yeah, why not? There's got to be aliens. But in general, it's considered kind of a fringe thing. How do you think about that? I mean, when I first heard of it, I was like, aliens? What? There's no way we're doing, like, real science on that. But people are seriously looking into it. And it blows my mind just how forward-thinking we can be and, like, how plausible actually some of this stuff is. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence has really ramped up in the last decade or so. Vishal says that's mainly because scientists have observed thousands of new planets. Almost every star you see at night has some planet around it. And half of them has Earth-like planet within the habitable zone. So we are definitely not likely to be alone. There must be other life out there. So here we are, sitting in a lava bed, listening to radio signals from space. So far, they've all turned out to be from natural sources, like pulsars. Pulsars are what's left after supermassive stars explode, leaving behind dense, rotating cores. As they rotate, they emit radio waves that pass over us in pulses, and we can convert those into audio. This is a pulsar 0329 plus 54, which rotates once every 0.7 second. So you will hear tuk, 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 tuk every 0.1 second. Next thing I'm going to show you is a millisecond pulsar, which rotates 700 times a second. This is what it sounds like. (laughs) I think I like the first one better. (laughs) (laughs) When scientists first discovered pulsars back in the 60s, they thought they could be aliens trying to communicate with us. But no. Unfortunately, we haven't found a clear signal of extraterrestrial life yet. Uh, We are hoping that we are close. And if we do detect life in outer space, what happens then? Other people are working on those questions, says Vishal. He's just glad to be here with the giant telescopes. 
listening. For me, it is like a mecca. One day, these telescopes might be contributing to the biggest discovery humanity has ever made. And you think maybe it'll happen in your lifetime? Why not? Yes, it is possible to happen within my lifetime. <laughs> the Allen Telescope Array at the Hat Creek Radio Observatory is open to visitors on Thursdays and Fridays. That was KQED's Catherine Monahan with a story from our Hidden Gems series about out-of-the-way spots you can visit in the Golden State. And that's it for the California Report magazine. We're a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Susie Racho is our producer-director. Our engineer is Brendan Willard. Olivia Zhao is our intern. And I'm Sasha Coca. You can catch all of our California stories at our podcast, The California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.